Amen. I just want to say you all sound great. Thanks for leading us in worship. Thanks for doing that. Also, I wanted to make a quick announcement. Um, there are a couple of meal trains out there if you want to uh, serve, if you want to help. Uh, I know uh, Kyle and Macy Tanner, uh, they just had their baby uh, last week. And so if you want to uh, help them by uh, uh, signing up and taking a meal to them, you can do that through uh, this, this site here, mealtrain.com. And um, also uh, Christy Morehouse and their family have been going through some some tough times. And uh, you might want to look at that one, too, and sign up on that one, caringbridge.org. But uh, I know that uh, it's a great time for us as the church to minister to them. Maybe take them a meal and, and just, uh, you know, let them know that we're caring and loving on them. And so if you would do that, I know they would greatly appreciate that. Um, we're going to continue on in our study in Nehemiah. And so if you have your scripture and want to open up to Nehemiah chapter 3, um, we're going to jump into that in just a little bit. You know, we are all leaders. Uh, we are leaders in our home. We are leaders in our marriages. We are leaders in our work. We are leaders in the church. And so every everything that we do involves leadership of some type. And so it's important for us to understand uh, why we're there if we're a leader. Uh, we need to understand that. And I, you know, it's, <laughs> I love this because in Nehemiah, we see a vision for leaders. Um, whether, whether we're, you know, uh, a leader at home or a leader at work, wherever it might be, we can utilize this and, and, and learn something from this. Um, I've been sharing an eight uh, step approach, if you will, to this leadership. And we're in, today I'm going to share step five with you. We've, we've covered four of them. Uh, so far, the first one is to prepare for the vision. Uh, in order to receive the vision that God has for us, we have to prepare ourselves for that. And then once we receive that, we have to define exactly what that looks like and understand what God is doing there. Uh, the third thing is to plant the vision. So we have to not only keep it to ourselves, but we also have to, to share that with other people. And so the fourth one is share the vision. And now comes the, the, the fifth step, which is to implement the vision. Okay? Um, what I want you to notice about this right now is that we are now over halfway through this eight-step process. And only now are we beginning to implement change. The four, first four steps have to do kind of with internal stuff and, and getting it right with God and figuring out what to, what needs to happen there. Now comes the part of implementing the change. And so this is an, a very important part of uh, this lesson in Nehemiah, uh, the vision for leaders. And so, you know, most churches spend too little time in preparation and they move far too quickly in making changes. And a lot of times that's why people get upset. Is because the change is happening too fast. But I want to give you three principles to applying this, implementing the vision uh, this morning. And, and these three principles, the first one is this. Implement your changes in a strategic order. Okay, and what I mean by that is be intentional. Don't just throw it out there and start willy-nilly doing something. Be intentional about what God is putting on your heart. 
I can't emphasize that enough. Be deliberate in the order of change because no one likes being changed except maybe a, a wet baby. You know, they don't, nobody enjoys change. I drink out of the same coffee cup every morning. We probably have 50 coffee cups. But I drink out of the same one every morning because I'm a creature of habit. And the bottom line is, is we don't like change. We like the things to stay the same. And, and, you know, it's when you're implementing all of the changes at once, what happens is it kills the vision. You have to be gradual. You have to be intentional in that. I want to show you from Scripture today that Nehemiah was intentional where he started in this wall rebuilding process. You remember, he went and he surveyed the wall. Uh, he heard that, that the, the wall around Jerusalem was, was broken down. It was still in ruins. From over a hundred years ago, the, the place was conquered and the, the, the temple was burned and all this stuff happened. Well, a hundred years later, he's coming back and he's saying, why is it still in ruins? How come no one has rebuilt this? And he, he was broken hearted over it. And so he went and committed himself to it. And he went out and he explored the wall and he, he went to see what needed to happen. God put this vision on his heart, and so he wanted to be deliberate in that. And I want to show you where he started uh, building. See, the work crews that, that came together in chapter 3, they were all organized around the gates. The gates. I'm going to read a few verses here, um, just various verses. I want to point them out to you in Nehemiah chapter 3. In verse 1 it says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. There's gate number 1. Down in verse 3 it says, Now the sons of uh, Hassanah uh, built the fish gate. Verse 6. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, uh, repaired the old gate. Verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. Verse 14. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hakarim, they repaired the refuse gate. Verse 15, Shalom, the son of uh, Kol Jose, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. And verse 28, above the horse gate, the priest carried out repairs each in front of his house. What Nehemiah did was he, he started working on those gates. And this is, this is important because it was very intentional. He decided the order. He had a strategic plan. He was intentional about where he began the vision and repairing the gates and the walls. He, he worked on the gates first. And then he worked on the walls second. And then the finishing touches last. Listen carefully. Changes in purpose should be made first. Before you can answer the what and the how, you have to know the why. 
I'm going to apply this personally in just a little bit, so you, you'll, you'll dig in on that. But you must understand and know the why before you can do the what and the how. The purpose is the why. So if you're going to change something, if you're going to make changes in your life or in the church or in your business or wherever, you've got to make those changes in purpose first. Because you have to know the why so that you can know the what and the how. Secondly, changes in target should be made next. Okay? Who your, who your audience is, what, what is going to happen there, and that's the what or the who. If you know the why, you can do the what or the who. Changes in strategy are the most visible, and that's why they must be last. Okay? This is the how. This is what people see. So changes in purpose are made first, changes in target are made next, and then changes in strategy are made last. If you know the why, you can know that you can do the what and the how. But that's very important that you have it in an intentional order. See, this important truth here that emerges is that this is God's design for ministry. You see, understand that God has placed each of us strategically where he wants us to be. Strategically, intentionally, deliberately, where he wants us to be. See, your neighborhood, your office, your home is where your ministry should be. That's why God put you there. You know, in John chapter 15, verse 16... Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. (laughs) It's no accident that you're here today. It's no accident. You just didn't roll out of bed and say, well, I'm going to go to Memorial this morning. God has a plan and he intentionally appoints us to places and and in front of people so that they can have influence in our lives. We call them divine appointments. So that we understand what God is doing when he's doing it in real time as they're standing before us. Jesus said to his disciples that he appointed them and the word means strategically placed them. And he had put them in a place where he wanted them to be. And that brings out beautifully here in our text as we watch these people laboring in their own neighborhoods. They're working on the gates in their neighborhood. Now understand this, to be placed here, wherever here may be, to be placed here means to have a responsibility here. (laughs) Wherever God places you, you have a responsibility there. It's not an accident. He put put you there. You have a job to do. He has put you in proximity where he has you in order to put you to work. To do something. Not just to sit. Not just to soak. Not just to sour. Okay, he puts us, he appoints us. He, He puts us out there. It was only after serving in Jerusalem that the apostles were to go out to Judea, out to Samaria, out to the remotest part of the earth. But you see, they started in Jerusalem. 
So let me ask you a question. Are there, are there homeless people near you? Then serve them. Serve them. Are there youth near you? Then mentor them. Are there unbelievers near you? Then evangelize them. Because it is a divine appointment that you are there. It's not something you can just say, well, I don't even know why I'm here. Yes, you do. God has given you a purpose. He has appointed you. He has, he has put this on you. It, it's, it's, um, he's implementing this. He's, he's being very intentional about placing you there. So let's first consider how we can best serve those closest to us before we go elsewhere. Do you want real change in your life? Do you want to live differently than you are right now? Because I would submit to you that you must give yourself to God. You must submit yourself to God through Jesus Christ, asking the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and life, pressing upon you the changes that he wants to make in your life. We can't just do whatever we want. We belong to him. If you want real change in your life, then you must submit to Almighty God. You know, I think it was, it was Sue Webb who told me earlier, you know, that she saw a sign someone was holding up in one of these, these protest things that says, uh, you know, if Jesus, uh, came back today, we'd kill him again. I mean, how horrible. We're waving our, our, our fist at God. The first thing it starts with is us humbling ourselves and submitting to God's authority in our life. He created you. He's the one who made you. I, I, I can't stress that enough because if you want real change in your life, then you have to submit to God. I want you to make a list of those changes that, that you sense God wanting you to make. And then put them in a strategic, in an intentional order. This needs to happen, then this needs to happen, then this needs to happen. And then begin working on them. Tackling them one change at a time. Moving on, I'm going to go to the second principle here. The second principle that we see is to put key leaders to work in a visible place. <laughs> I love this. Because Nehemiah... He knew the principle of leader visibility. Again, in, in verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest. In verse 3, you have Hanasa at the fish gate. You have these leaders. Uh, and he puts them at the gates of the city. <laughs> Why put them on the gates? Why can't they work somewhere else? Because you could not come and go from the city Without seeing the leaders working. Oh, that's huge. That's huge. Because when people see their leaders working, they are also willing to work. Men, if you want to be a leader in your home, then you need to work harder at making that home a home than anyone else in that home. I don't care if it means doing the dishes, taking out the, the trash or, or folding laundry. 
You need to be the one who works as hard as anyone else to make that home a home. When, when people see the leaders working, they want to work as well. The problem is, is we're selfish and we all want me time rather than serving others whom God has given us. Do you know that God is a great believer in recording people's names? I mean, we have all of these people here that are that are listed working on this wall. Some of the huge chapters in the Bible have list after list of people's names who who did things. You know, you, you go into Numbers and you, you go into the Old Testament and you start reading all of these names that are listed that are hard to pronounce. But it's true. God is a great believer in recording people's names. And there are many chapters like that in Scripture, but you should this should really be an encouragement to us. Because it means that God has not forgotten our names either. He loves to record the, the names of obscure people. Think about this. Have you heard of the Lamb's Book of Life? You know, it talks about it in Revelation 21 and 22. The Lamb's Book of Life. You know, I googled, I googled, how do you get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? Just to see what it said. And this was the, the top response that came up. There's only one way today to know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You must submit your name and personal information to the Humanity Party, the only political movement that will solve world poverty and suffering. You know why you laugh? Because it's crazy. Because it's not true. Because you know the truth. And you know how ridiculous, how stupid is that? But somebody is trying to make the Lamb's Book of Life into something political. Join our party and your name will be in the book. Not very far below that, okay? Let me read this to you first out of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 15. And it says, if it's talking about the great white throne judgment. Standing before Almighty God. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 27. Talking about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. And what's going to be there and what's not going to be there. It says in verse 27, And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's the truth. To have your name written in the Lamb's book of life means that you have repented of your sins. You have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, who is the Lamb, before your physical death happens. 
And to be born again means that you die to your old self and you allow the Holy Spirit to come in and and guide you into being a new creation. It's called a transformed life. Then your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. It's not by joining some political movement. It's not by being a good person. It's not by weighing out all of these things. It's by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And I cannot make it any plainer. Because when we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, praise God, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Done deal. You know what? I love that because that means that people like me, when he opens that book, my name's going to be in there. And he's going to say, enter in. But it only comes through salvation in Jesus Christ. It also says that you can't trust what you read on the Internet. Let me think about it. This is what God's word says the Lamb's book of life is. Not what Google said. You know, the central teaching in the the chapter in Nehemiah, moving on, like this is that in putting our lives back together, rebuilding the walls, putting our lives back together, we need and we must seek the help from each other. We are the body of Christ. This is a great chapter on cooperation and unity. I mean, it illustrates in the New Testament truth concerning the body of Christ. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and other chapters teach that believers in Jesus Christ are part of a a worldwide body of Christ that is made up of many members. And, And we belong to each other. And so because we belong to each other, we are to help one another and we're to bear one another's burdens. See, this is portrayed in a very real way throughout this chapter. We learn from the the New Testament as well that there are two things that you cannot say when you become a Christian. The first is, (laughs) you don't need me. Everyone in the body of Christ needs everyone else. And the second thing is, you cannot say is, I don't need you. Because we need each other. See, that's, that's what brings the awareness of that truth that that makes the church a living, loving, warm, vital fellowship of believers is because we know that we need each other in this life. That God has not given us the, the, the problem of walking this journey alone, but we have others that will hold us accountable, that can lift us up, that can pull us out of the ditch when we're in the ditch or pull us out of the fire when the house is burning down around us. We have people that can help us, sustain us. That's a beautiful picture. You know, in summoning the people of Jerusalem to to rebuild the wall and the gates, we learn that all of the people, all of the people were involved in the project. Folks, that portrays for us an important principle that the ministry of the church belongs to everyone in the congregation. It's all of our responsibility. If you are called to be here, then you have a responsibility here. See, that's the beautiful part of it. We know that we belong 
because we have a responsibility, there's something for us to do here. You know, oftentimes people think that the only, maybe the pastor or the, the hired staff are to do the work of evangelizing, of, of teaching, of counseling, of, of healing the hurts of others and, and serving the needs of the body. And because the church in general has practiced that for so long, the church is in trouble all over the world. Because they're laying on the shoulders what should be everybody's responsibility. They're laying on the shoulders of a very few to do. And that's not right. The ministry belongs to the whole congregation. I don't know of any truth more important for accomplishing God's work than that. Because in many churches it's difficult for people to understand that. You know, you have the great honor of reaching out in your neighborhood where you live to the people around you and doing the work of the ministry right there. We all live in in different places geographically all over this area. And we have the opportunity to reach our neighbors right where we're at. But we don't. Many times we don't. And I would submit that because we are so focused on ourselves... We don't minister to our neighbors like we should. See, when churches don't understand this principle, we get a distorted uh, condition. People have no ministry. They don't feel useful in the kingdom, so therefore, they don't do a whole lot of work. They're very, they're not very excited about kingdom work because they don't feel like they have a ministry, but they're also not Very intentional about the transformed life either. Because they're not busy working for the Lord. They're not busy working for the King. I want to continue on with that thought for just a moment. Number three. Put people where, (laughs) put people to work where they are vested. See, I see a pattern developing in this chapter. Uh, Nehemiah reasoned that most of the people would want to see the the wall rebuilt. Most people, they would be like, oh yeah, we we need that done. We want to work on that. Uh, But he knew that each person would be especially interested if they were rebuilding the wall by their house. I mean, right? If you know that there's a breach in the wall right in front of your house, you're going to want to fix that. So that the enemy doesn't come in. If you want protection, you're going to build that wall. Especially you're going to want to work close to your house where your loved ones live. Because you want to protect them. You want to take care of that. So seeing that, he he assigned people to rebuild the wall. And where did he assign them? I want to give you a couple verses here. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10. It says, next to them, Jediah, the son of Harum." made repairs opposite his house. So he's working on the wall, I want to say, across the street from his house. He's he's working there close to his house. Uh, verse 23 says, After them, Benjamin and uh, Hashub carried out repairs in front of their house. <laughs> verse 28 and 29, Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his house. 29, after them, Zadok, the son of uh, Emer, uh, carried out repairs in front of his house. You see, they're all working on the wall that's closest to where they live. I think that's huge. 
As we read through the work rosters of people working on the wall, we notice that they are working right in front, right beside their house, or in opposite, the opposite side of their house. And this is a principle for leaders to follow. If you're a leader, you need to understand this, and, and it's something for workers to consider. Each of us in the kingdom of God has been called to do the work of the kingdom. Literally, to work on the wall. But often, <laughs> we are assigned places to work that are far away from where we live. I'm not talking about geographically speaking. But we're talking about jobs that are far from where our hearts are. It's something that we don't get. You know, I spent close to 20 years of my life working as a chef, you know, creating culinary delights for other people, running a production kitchen. <laughs> but early on, right after Tracy and I got married, I found myself living in a very small town in central Oregon. The best paying job in that town was in a sawmill. Now, specifically, this sawmill was called a cut shop. And what they did is they took lumber, various sizes, and they would cut it down and make things like door jams and, and uh, window molding and other things like that out of sizes of those, those, that lumber. But what they would do is they would take that lumber and if there was a, a, you know, a pitch pocket or something, an imperfection in that lumber, they would cut it out. And they would be able to use seven feet here for a door jam. And then after that, they might have two feet of good lumber. And they would use that for a windowsill and that kind of thing. And so it was a cut shop. And that's what they did. Well, they took all of these pieces that were imperfect. And they would they would send them back and they would re-saw those. They called it re-rip. And they would, they would cut those blocks again to get all of the good wood they could out of those blocks. And then what they would do is, is you might have a four inch piece, you might have a foot long piece. And what they would do is they would, they would, they had knives, uh, saw blades that cut fingers in it and they would make finger joint. And so what they would do is they would take all those little blocks, they would finger joint them and then they would glue them together and they would make molding and things out of that and they would, they would paint it and you couldn't even tell that it was not one solid piece of wood. It was made out of finger joint. And so they would try to save all the wood they can. Anyway, I had this job and it was sorting thousands of small blocks for imperfections to see what would happen with those. And I would I spent literally hours on my knees and every every hour more and more of these stupid little blocks would come down, pouring down. I'm down there on my knees sorting these blocks as fast as I can. Wasting my culinary talents. Down there on my knees, I hated this job. Every hour I was more behind than when I started. I could not get ahead on this job. Now for a creative person, the monotony of sorting those blocks all day long was like being in prison, I imagine. I don't know. But I imagine. I would sort those little blocks and sense that it had been hours had gone by. And I'd look at the clock and five minutes had passed. That was my day. 
eight to nine hours a day. I hated every day of it. Telling you right now, I didn't like that job. And honestly, I hated it. I never really got it down. And that job was so far from my heart. It's not what I wanted to be doing. Wasn't long and I quit that job and I moved on. But listen, kingdom work for our Lord Jesus Christ is not supposed to be like that. And if that has been your experience, I am so sorry. Because that's not what it's supposed to be like. Work in the kingdom is supposed to be close to home. The things that you enjoy. The things that make your heart sing. You know, one of the biggest lessons that I am learning through leadership is that when someone comes to me and says, Pastor Ridge, I want to get plugged in at Memorial. I have something to offer. I want to do something here. I shouldn't automatically say, well, great, we need fourth grade Sunday school teachers. We need another person up in the sound booth and let's get you changing diapers in the nursery. That may or may not be where the heart is. That may or may not be close to home for them. You see, it's not where, it, that, that's not where you live. It's not where your heart is. And so therefore, you're going to get burned out. And you're going to start to resent that job. It's not the part of the wall that you're satisfied or called to be working on. And you're not going to be satisfied with it. See, if people are assigned to the wrong part of the wall, many will end up not working on the wall at all. Well, if that's the only job I got, I'm not interested in it. See, I'm getting better about responding to volunteers. I want to ask the question, where do you live? What's your heart? What part of the wall are you close to? See, every person here is called to be working on the wall, to be volunteering in the kingdom of God. That might be changing diapers. It might be teaching Sunday school. But instead, it might be clicking on slides that are showing on the PowerPoint. It might be interceding for others through prayer. It might be volunteering in our office or or doing carpentry or pulling weeds or using your skills in video editing or cooking for Feed My Sheep or, or organizational or administration skills. It may be something that's close to your heart where you live. But you have something to offer the kingdom of God. The leader's responsibility is to see if there is a section of the wall needing work that is close to home, close to your heart. But I would also challenge you this morning to volunteer. To put it out there. Are you working on the wall? If not, why not? There's some place close to your heart that you should be. See, when it comes to implementing vision, you have to go slow, implementing any changes that are related to vision. And the speed of your transition is determined by four factors. One is the distance that you must go. If you have a further distance to go in in the transition, then you have to move slower. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. The size of the ship matters. 
The bigger the ship, the slower the, the, you can turn in that direction. The age of the ship matters. The older the ship, the slower you need to take it. And really, the only way you can go faster has to do with the toughness of the leader. If as a leader that you're tough and you can take the heat, <laughs> then you can turn the ship faster. Bringing this in for a landing, I just want to wrap this up. But I want to say lastly this, that unity, which is what we see here, unity always precedes revival among the people of God. In order to bring unity, we must labor to reconcile any relationship that the enemy has divided. The enemy wants to come in and divide the people of God. He wants to divide husband and wife. He wants to divide co-workers. He wants to create division wherever he can. Because if we are out there by ourself, if we're out there by our onesie, then he can uh, devour us. But as we stick together, as we uh, bond together, as we come together and allow God to work, to bring unity, we have to labor to reconcile those relationships. See, if there are any relationships out of order, we must, as the people of God, seek reconciliation. This means forgiving anyone who has hurt us and trying to restore those relationships as best we can. See, it includes also restoring relationships within the church, between others. It's not, it's not okay for us to say, well, it's not my problem. I'm not going to get involved. If you're part of the body of Christ, then you need to be a peacemaker. You need to be that mediator that brings sides together. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul said this. He said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As people were discerning how they could best serve the Lord, many of the places that God called them to serve were right there next to them, real close to their heart. They served and they rebuilt the wall right next to their houses. <laughs> Revival happens when there is unity. Folks, this teaches us a great deal about serving the Lord and the part of that in revival. Many times the Lord calls us to serve in areas right in front of us and with people who are often close to us. I mean, we have people who go all over the world. We have people that want to serve God in other countries and, and that type of thing. Go here and go there. And I want to tell you, that's God's work too and that's great. But most of the time, God will first call us to serve right where we are, wherever home is. And revival often begins at home. See, if we're going to have revival, even on a small level here at Memorial, or in our homes, a revival, we have to start to reconcile those relationships and we have to start working together. I mean, we can be sure of this reality that Satan works overtime to bring about division. He's doing it in our country right now. We see that. You would, you'd have to be living in a cave under a rock to not see it. 
But the enemy is seeking whom he may devour. And he knows that whenever there is disunity, there is no blessing from God. If he can keep us separated, if he can keep us divided, if he can keep us on our heels, he knows that we're not going to do anything lasting for the kingdom and that, that we will not receive God's blessing. In fact, it only opens up the door for Satan to, to even be more devastating and to bring destruction. Paul said this in Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. See, Paul uses war terminology there. And to allow division in the church or in our families is to break down the walls and allow the enemy a place to attack. It gives the devil a foothold, a base to attack from, from all different angles. If we're going to have revival, we have to have unity. Unity takes courage. Unity takes humility. Unity takes forgiveness. Unity takes grace. Brothers and sisters, I believe that it's time to build. I believe God wants us all working in unity for His glory. See, when we have the courage to admit that we've messed up, that we've messed things up, and when we become concerned enough about the way we're living to confess our sins, then we know that God will do His rebuilding work in our lives and in our homes and in our marriages and in our church and in our nation. But it's going to be because God's people humble themselves before Him and begin to pray. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I thank You for how we see um, people working close to home. Father, that we all have a job to do. That, that Father, we, you're intentional about where you put us and where you place us. So, Father, I pray that we would be about your kingdom work. Father, I ask that you would transform our hearts. Father, that, that you would bring us, that you would draw us by your Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus. That we would turn our eyes to Him and see how far away from Jesus we, we really are. Lord, I pray that we would no longer be blind, but Father, that You would allow the scales to fall off of our eyes and that we would see our hearts in the condition that they are truly in as walls broken down, overrun by weeds, overrun by the enemy. Father, that you would guide us into rebuilding those walls for the protection of our very souls. Father, for the protection of our homes and our marriages. Father, for the protection of our church and your people. Father, that you would help us rebuild the walls in our lives. Father, that we could not be devastated by the enemy. That, that he would not have a foothold. God, that you would cleanse us and wash us, that we would be your spotless bride. Father, I thank you for making a way through Jesus.
that we can be redeemed. And Father, I pray that You would guide us in that. Lord, as we continue to worship You, I ask You, Holy Spirit, to move in our hearts. That You would convict us of the truth. And Father, that we would know exactly what we need to do. Lord, we give You praise and glory and honor for Your Word and for the truth of Your Word. Your Word stands forever. Father, Your promises do not fail. Father, we look forward to being with You for all eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.